This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive, The Young Turks, Counterspin, NPR, The Onion Radio News, Mumi Abu-Jamal, Media Matters, and The Bugle, with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. As usual, President Obama's rhetoric was lofty. It's just the reality that concerns me. For instance, in his big Middle East speech, he said, We have the chance to show that America values the dignity of the street vendor in Tunisia more than the raw power of the dictator. But in reality, the Obama administration supported the Tunisian dictator up to the very last minute. Take another example. He also said we will not tolerate aggression across borders. But the United States said nothing when Saudi Arabia sent tanks into Bahrain to help the king put down some protests. And actually, Obama himself said nothing about Saudi Arabia in his entire speech, a huge omission given U.S. dependence on Saudi oil. The best part of Obama's speech, though, was when he used frank language about Israel's longstanding policy toward the Palestinians. Permanent occupation won't work, Obama said, adding, the status quo is unsustainable and endless delay won't make the problem go away. He's absolutely right about that. And endless delay has been the hallmark of the Likud party. Obama was right to say out loud that the borders of Israel and Palestine should be based on the 1967 lines. But saying it doesn't make it happen, and Netanyahu is already pushing back. If Obama doesn't use U.S. leverage, his talk on Israel will end up being just that, talk. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. You talk too much, you worry me to death. You talk too much, you even worry my pet. You just talk, talk too much. You talk about people that you don't know. You talk about people wherever you go. You just Benjamin Netanyahu is the Prime Minister of Israel. He went to the United States Congress and was greeted like a king, a hero, a savior. Uh, he got bigger applause than our president. He got much bigger applause than he would in his own country in Israel. In Israel, they can make a decision between the right wing and the left wing. And some are on one side, some are on the other, some are in the middle. But here in the United States of America, there apparently is no distinction. It doesn't matter if the Prime Minister of Israel is left-wing or right-wing. It doesn't matter if our senators and congressmen are right-wing, left-wing, liberal, uh, Democrat, Republican, conservative. It does not matter. The one and only thing that is a fact in American politics today is that no matter who is the Prime Minister of Israel, they will be greeted as the second coming. And today he got raucous applause. Well, I'm going to show it to you. And then I'm going to come back and tell you some of the things he said that were, in my opinion, disastrous and what some top Palestinian officials have called a declaration of war. And this is how he was greeted by the United States Congress. Let's watch. Two years ago, I publicly committed to a solution of two states for two peoples, a Palestinian state alongside a Jewish state. I am willing to make painful compromises to achieve this historic peace. As the leader of Israel, it's my responsibility to lead my people to peace. 
Now, this is not easy for me. It's not easy. Because I recognize that in a genuine peace, we'll be required to give up parts of the ancestral Jewish homeland. And you have to understand this. In Judea and Samaria, the Jewish people are not foreign occupiers. We're not the British in India. We're not the Belgians in the Congo. This is the land of our forefathers, the land of Israel, to which Abraham brought the idea of one God, where David set out to confront Goliath, and where Isaiah saw a vision of eternal peace. No distortion of history. And boy, am I reading a lot of distortions of history lately, old and new. No distortion of history could deny the 4,000-year-old bond between the Jewish people and the Jewish land. Now, in the beginning, he says some things that seemed hopeful. I was hopeful when I heard it. Uh, you know, he wants two states, which is what other Israeli prime ministers have said in the past, what Netanyahu has said. Great, fantastic. He said he's willing to make painful compromises. That's what you need for peace. And then he dashed all hopes for peace. Uh, Jews are not uh, occupiers in Judea and Samaria. That is, of course, the ancient way of referring to the West Bank. So, meaning, we are not the occupiers. It is our land. And as you just heard at the end there, saying it is Jewish land. It is historically Jewish land. By history, of course, he means 2,000, 2,500 years ago with the mythological characters of Solomon, David, Isaiah, and whatever else that people like to make up. Uh, those are characters that are in a particular religious text. I understand it's a large one. I understand it's one that a lot of people care deeply about. But it does not speak to actual history. It is mythology. History says that when Israel was declared a state in 1948, they were a tiny, tiny percentage of the people that it, it occupied all of Israel, about 6%, let alone the West Bank. They were almost, well, I, they had a very small presence, let's put it that way. So you can tell me, oh yeah, yeah, we didn't live there in 1948, but we lived there, theoretically we think, according to Noah and uh, Adam and Eve and Isaiah and David and whatever else somebody wrote in a book 2000 or much longer ago, 2,500 years ago, we lived there at some point, we think. Well, all right, you know, uh, before uh, 1918, the Turks ruled uh, Judea and Samaria. That's much, much earlier. Should the Turks go back and take it? It was our land. It was our land. Well, based on that, you know what we're going to have? We're going to have perpetual war, where people keep going back saying, well, 100 years ago it was ours, 1,000 years ago it was theirs, 2,000 years ago it was theirs. Should, should the Babylonians come back in? They're in Iraq. Should they demand uh, the holy land? Everybody thinks it's holy, apparently, except for us, the reasonable, logical people who think that it has nothing to do with holy at all. You know, in fact, all it's ever created was wars. 
but it doesn't solve the equation to say it is holy to you. It is also holy to Muslims. It is also holy to Christians. We started crusades over this piece of land. And so what did Netanyahu say after that? Well, that's the disastrous part. He said uh, that we, there will be a unified Jerusalem, meaning the Arabs do not get to live, you know, or control and govern the areas where they live. So East Jerusalem will be unified, it will be Israeli controlled. Uh, is that part of any reasonable peace agreement? No, who cares? We don't want a reasonable peace agreement. What we want is everything our way, otherwise war, who cares? That is what Netanyahu said today, and that is what he got a standing ovation for in the United States Congress. He continued, well, they will not be returning to the 1967 lines. He did not make clear how much of the occupied territory that he would like to occupy forever. Will they continue settlements? Of course they will. He said they will not be negotiating with Hamas. Ironically, Harry Reid, Steny Hoyer, Democrats, uh, defied a Democratic president and said to say that we should do the negotiations based on 1967 uh, lines is uh, prejudging the negotiations. And we will not be doing that. There should be uh, nothing ahead of time to say what should be in the negotiations. So we disagree with President Obama. They threw him under the bus, right? Those are so-called democratic leaders, right? <laughs> but what is Netanyahu saying? Well, I want uh, pre-negotiations, and I want the other side to not have their representatives there. I would like only half of their representatives there. How do you like that for pre-negotiation? And I would like them to concede uh, the main card that they hold not recognizing the right uh, of Israel to exist. Look, I want that too. But for you to say, okay, you don't get to put any pre-negotiations on the table, but I demand that you pre-negotiate away everything before the negotiations begin, is absurd. And on Israel's right to exist, look, every reasonable person believes Israel should exist. It exists already. What Israel is denying is literally the Palestinians' right to exist as a country and as a state. That is not theoretical, that is not rhetorical, it is done by brute force and their military paid for by the United States of America. And I don't care what you think Judea and Samaria were 2500 years ago, today it is a brutal occupation. And there is no dispute of that, except apparently in the United States Congress where he can, Netanyahu come in and say anything and get a standing ovation. I am, I cannot believe, well, of course I can believe it, but I'm still very disappointed to see it, and I'm being mild. Uh, he says that he will not allow descendants of Palestinian refugees to enter Israel. So, what do the Palestinians get? Nothing. According to Netanyahu, what do the Israelis get? Everything. And how much of the West Bank and Gaza Strip are they willing to give up? He wouldn't even say. He said, oh, it is our land, it has always been our land, we are not occupiers, even though we've got millions of people there, that we will not allow them to govern themselves, we will not let them have a democracy, we will not let them control their own borders. And by the way, if you think at the end of this peace deal, even if I get everything I want, the Palestinians are going to be self-governing, you are wrong, because Netanyahu says, at the end, I still want my military inside their borders. Uh, just on the uh, border, though. Well, then if they're inside the borders, then they don't control that border, then they're not really a sovereign state. And what does he get? He gets a standing ovation from the United States Congress. Now do you see why we can't have peace? Because 
it is largely the fault of the United States of America because no matter how right-wing the government of Israel is we will stand behind it no matter how much it occupies those people for how many decades and how many million people it occupies we will stand behind it we will not question our liberals will not question our conservatives will not question our democrats and republicans certainly will not question all they will do is say yes sir how can we please you sir what more can we do to help your occupation sir I'm afraid for Israel, I'm afraid for the Palestinians, I'm afraid for the Middle East, I'm afraid for the whole world. Because this kind of arrogance leads to stupid, stupid, terribly destructive wars. Barack Obama's May 19th speech outlined an Israeli-Palestinian resolution based on 1967 borders with certain unspecified land swaps to accommodate mostly for Israeli settlements in the West Bank. This is widely understood to be the basis for the past decade or so of U.S.-sponsored negotiations. Some accounts in the media pointed out as much, at least early on. But the reaction of Republican leaders, conservative pundits, and Israeli political officials transformed a rather unremarkable statement into an attack on Israel. And it wasn't just the usual Fox News pundits sounding the alarm. On ABC's World News, anchor David Muir declared on May 20th that Obama used, quote, harsh words aimed squarely at Israel, close quote. Two days later, Muir used the same formulation, aiming harsh words directly at Israel. No explanation was given as to why these words were harsh, other than the fact that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu didn't like them. Ten thousand words swam around my head, ten million more in books written beneath my bed. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7-8% to of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. This crowd was not primed to embrace President Obama. As one speaker put it, the APAC conference is the home of America's pro-Israel movement. And the president's speech on Thursday rankled many of Israel's staunchest supporters. That speech included the argument that Palestinian-Israeli peace talks should begin with Israel's 1967 borders, with mutually agreed-upon land swaps. 
Sitting in the crowd of 10,000 this morning was Judith Pfeffer of Warrenton, Pennsylvania. She describes herself as a huge Obama supporter, and she says his Mideast speech on Thursday left her troubled. Although I'm usually more mainstream or to the left in Israeli politics, I really understand Netanyahu on this issue. Benjamin Netanyahu is Israel's prime minister. In the Oval Office on Friday, he looked the president in the eye and called Mr. Obama's proposal indefensible. While Israel is prepared to make generous compromises for peace, it cannot go back to the 1967 lines. This morning, President Obama tried to defuse the controversy. He told AIPAC that his position is no different from the U.S. position going back to the 1990s. What I did on Thursday was to say publicly what has long been acknowledged privately. He argued that his position has been misrepresented. And the audience responded favorably when he explained that he wants Israelis and Palestinians themselves to negotiate a border that is different from the 1967 lines. That's what mutually agreed upon swaps means. It is a well-known formula to all who have worked on this issue for a generation. It allows the parties themselves to account for the changes that have taken place over the last 44 years. He said the world is changing so fast that delaying peace will only make Israel's challenges grow. Still, there's no sign of real peace negotiations starting anytime soon. And that leaves Randall Levitt of Rockville, Maryland, wondering why President Obama decided to wade into this morass now. My general feeling is that it's completely unnecessary and ill-timed. And I'm really unable to understand why he created a conflict and disagreement with a close ally at a moment in time when there doesn't appear to be any possibility at all for meaningful negotiations. Whether the controversy is authentic or manufactured, as President Obama claims, today's speech does not seem to have made it go away. Ari Shapiro, NPR News, Washington. Gibson launches rockets into Israel. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Sources inside the Pentagon are reporting that actor Mel Gibson fired over 40 rockets into Israel early this morning and shows no sign of lowering his hostilities. The actor's Humvee was sighted at the Israel-Lebanon border before dawn, shortly before the intensive barrage of Zalzal-2 missiles began. Gibson's agent Daniel Shepard is helping out with targeting. Look, Mel Gibson needs to follow his creative vision, all right, wherever that leads him. Gibson's handlers say he will re-intensify his rocket attack on the Jewish homeland once he finalizes negotiations to star in Lethal Weapon 5.
International media have been focused on the Gaza flotilla activists who are attempting to break the Israeli blockade of the Gaza Strip to bring attention to the living conditions of the million and a half people there. But if you're reading the New York Times, one message you've been getting is that there's not much of a crisis in Gaza at all. The paper's Jerusalem bureau chief, Ethan Broner, wrote an article on June 25th that stressed the building of two luxury hotels in Gaza. As he put it, activists were about to set sail to protest conditions in a place that was undergoing an economic boom. Quote, for the past year, Israel has allowed most everything into Gaza but cement, steel, and other construction material. Close quote. On July 3rd, Bronner was added again. Under the headline, Setting Sail on Gaza's Sea of Spin, Broner blamed both sides for exaggerating things. But again, he pushed back against the idea that people in Gaza were suffering. Sure, Israel killed nine activists on last year's flotilla, but, quote, the international outrage that followed helped force an easing of the siege. One result, largely unacknowledged by the flotilla leaders, far more goods have gone into Gaza over the past year, and while the 1.6 million people there still need many things, basic supplies are not among them, close quote. Well, human rights groups monitoring Gaza see it differently. In December of last year, Oxfam reported that there are few signs of real improvement. The report noted that food shipments had improved, but electricity, water, and construction materials were still blocked. In March of this year, a United Nations report found, quote, the easing of the blockade on the Gaza Strip since June 2010 did not result in a significant improvement in people's livelihoods, close quote. Now, Bronner is arguing that the Gaza boom goes largely unacknowledged by the flotilla activists. Actually, what they're saying is that the blockade has hardly been eased at all. That is something very, very different. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. I want to talk about how our politicians lose their mind a little bit when it comes to the government of Israel. Uh, in the one case here that we have, it doesn't matter if you're left-wing, you're right-wing here in the United States, you support the government of Israel. It doesn't matter if the government of Israel is left-wing or right-wing, they're always right. Perfect example is what happened here with uh, President Obama's speech recently and then uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech in Congress yesterday. So the President says, hey, we should go to the 1967 borders with mutually agreed swaps. Now this is the least objectionable thing a President has ever said. That's exactly what George W. Bush said. That's what Hillary Clinton said before. 
That is what the former Prime Minister of Israel, Ehud Olmert, said. That is what the current opposition in Israel says. And until very recently, in fact last year, Netanyahu agreed to the same exact thing. But what happens? The Republicans jump down President Obama's throat. And they say that he's throwing Israel under the bus and it is unprecedented and unbelievable. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is incredibly right-wing, jumps on that and says, all right, fantastic, thank you for that gift. And then he comes in front of uh, Congress yesterday and gets standing ovations from both Republicans and Democrats. I don't know how that makes sense, but first let's watch a, a piece of his speech from last night. Israel will not return to the indefensible boundaries of 1967. So, standing ovation for a guy who just said we won't go back to the 1967 borders, which is what the entire world community had agreed upon, including Israel, for so long. Now, why, are, why is everybody giving that a standing ovation, let alone the Democrats, who apparently are also throwing their own president under the bus? For example, Harry Reid uh, said of President Obama's statements, quote, No one should set premature parameters about borders, about building, or about anything else meaning that the president appeared to be asking for preconditions. But that's not what the president asked for, and Israel always asks for preconditions. They say that the Palestinians must accept their right to exist or they will not go to the table. Well, I agree with that condition that the Israelis want, but then you can't have it both ways saying that the Palestinians can set no preconditions and Israel can set all preconditions. But I think Congressman Rob Andrews made it much worse when he said that President Obama, quote, was tilting toward Hamas which is outrageous. How can you possibly say that, let alone about your own president? Now, here's the, what Netanyahu laid out in his speech. Apparently, Israel uh, will keep all of Jerusalem, according to him, uh, no return to the 1967 lines, no negotiation with Hamas, and they will not allow the descendants of the Palestinian refugees to enter Israel. So, the, Israel, the Palestinians get nothing. And what does our United States Congress respond to that? Of course, standing ovation. Let's watch. The Jewish people are not foreign occupiers. Except, of course, there are millions of Palestinians who are actually currently occupied by the state of Israel. Can we please get some sanity on this? Just because the Israeli prime minister says it doesn't mean we have to agree with it. Let's use our minds. I'm originally from Turkey. I can use my mind to say the Turkish government is wrong sometimes, oftentimes. And I'm not going to agree with a right-wing Turkish government. Why do we all agree with a right-wing Israeli government? Makes no sense. Common sense, teach me everything I need to know What's worth fighting for, what I need to just let go Common sense, teach me what it means to be alive What to make of all this time, time, time Why it seems that I am blind On Sunday, Israel once again showed the world how it intends to react to nonviolent protest by Palestinians, lethally. 
For the second time in three weeks, the Israeli Defense Forces have fired into crowds of nonviolent protesters who've been challenging Israel's borders along the occupied territories. Sunday, the conflict was at the Golan Heights as Palestinians and Syrians protested the 44th anniversary of Israel's seizure of this land during the Six-Day War. Israelis have since claimed they need the Golan Heights for security, but former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert said just a few years ago, who seriously thinks that if we sit on another hilltop on another 100 meters, this will make a difference for Israel's basic security? Israel responded to the mass march on Sunday by opening fire, killing 23 people and wounding hundreds. This brute reaction demands not only a firm condemnation by Washington, but a suspension of the $3 billion military allowance that we give Israel every year. The Leahy Law says that the U.S. military aid cannot be delivered to governments engaged in human rights abuses, and mowing down 23 people certainly constitutes a human rights abuse. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Why is Israel bombing Gaza? Israeli officials say it's because Gaza militants raided the southern resort town of Eilat, killing eight Israelis. But there doesn't seem to be any evidence that the killers were from Gaza. Following the raid, Israel claimed to have killed the culprits, which it said were from the Gaza-based group the Popular Resistance Committees. Though no group has taken credit for the raid, and Israel is refusing to release any information about the bodies it recovered. Nonetheless, Israel carried out retaliation attacks against the militant group in Gaza, killing civilians, including at least one child. Reporters at websites like the Israeli-based Plus 972 have been documenting how elite Israeli media outlets took Israeli government claims at face value. The U.S. press has largely echoed Israeli officialdom. An account in Time magazine, for example, stated matter-of-factly, the ambush by Palestinian militants left eight Israelis dead. But there is still no solid evidence that the attackers were Palestinian. Some reports are suggesting that at least some of the attackers were Egyptian. It's a story that cries out for more critical media scrutiny, but is hardly registering in U.S. corporate media. It's the Onion Radio News. The Palestine Authority appoints a new Minister of Rubble and Urban Development. This is Doyle Redland reporting. After weeks of political infighting, Palestinian Prime Minister Ahmed Korea has appointed Hassan al-Khatif to head up the region's new Ministry of Rubble and Urban Development. Korea made it official this morning. Minister al-Khatif's plan is to provide economic incentive for personal and private development of Palestine's many massive piles of rocks and debris. Al-Khatif replaces the late Amir al-Luzari, who was killed in what Israeli occupation forces 
characterized as an accidental burst of gunfire while surveying a new rubble development on the former site of a 1,400-year-old library. Doyle Redland for the... Hey, Lewis, what's the best reason, if you could tell someone who listens to Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast to tune into our show, what, what's, what would you say to them? Uh, I would say that uh, our, our view of things is among the best of, of the left. Our view is the best. Like, our view, what kind of view? What does that mean? Our worldview. Which consists of what? Pretty much everything. <laughs> but what's, like, one thing? What could people expect to hear if they tune in? Uh, let's see. It's not clear, is it? It's not. Anything goes. Anything goes on the show. Pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Palestine at the UN. Nationhood. Before the month is out, leaders of the Palestine Authority are expected to formally proclaim statehood before the United Nations. The latest effort to escape the deadly trap posed by an alleged ally, the U.S., and an avowed enemy, Israel. Although such a proposal is enormously popular in a vast majority of member states, and thus would easily pass by majority vote, it would undoubtedly be rejected by the United States, a member of the decisive Security Council. But while the U.S. may veto the motion, in a political sense, it strengthens the beleaguered and struggling Palestinian political class, for they will doubtless use this opportunity to illustrate how the U.S., even since President George W. Bush, talks about Palestinian statehood, but when they try to advance towards it, guess which country emerges as its prime obstruction. While such an event would not dash Palestinian dreams of nationhood, it may extinguish forever the illusion of U.S. neutrality. It may also show how the U.N. is an instrument of the powerful and a bane to the powerless. After half a century, Palestine has been shredded by the Israeli occupation, with losses to its lands, its water, and its population. It is today little more than an open-air prison, surrounded by walls, caged in, and neither the U.S. nor the U.N. has any intention to relieve its misery. Indeed, before there was a U.N., when it was called the League of Nations, that body granted power to Britain, which held power over the lands as a so-called trusteeship. The British ceded large swaths of Palestinian territories to Jews fleeing racist terror in Europe. Notice, swaths of another's territory, none of its own. Their struggle for true nationhood, for independence, can only continue. From death row, this is Mumia Abu. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. Fox News has a conspiracy theorist on its hands, and his name is Eric Bowling. This week, in anticipation of a Palestinian bid for statehood, Bolin accused the Obama administration of setting up the whole showdown at the UN just so it could take credit for voting against it. I'm I mad because yeah. Yeah. I think this is all a setup. I think this is the Palestinians say, hey, Mr. Obama, we want, we're thinking about uh, asking right. for statehood, 
and they know very well the Obama administration is going to say, no way, not now, this is not the time. And then when we go into the election, Obama's going to go, oh, look what I did, Israel, all you uh, Israeli vote, Israel um, Jewish voters, vote for me. I am pro-Israel. Yeah. Meanwhile, everything he's done has been anti-Israel you know, you, you, up until you this are point. So According to news reports, the Obama administration has been working to avert a vote on the resolution at the United Nations. Give me an A! Give me an L! Wait, if you're going to say Palestine, you are not getting any more letters. That is not a recognisable word in the UN dictionary. <laughs> and the, the long journey on the roundabout to peace in the Middle East took another turn this week when cheeky little Palestine unexpectedly announced that they were going to ask the UN to recognise them as an official state. And uh, they would need to get nine out of 15 council members to vote for them, with no vetoes from any of the permanent members. And the problem is that on this issue, America has a very twitchy veto finger. <laughs> it's, it's not that they want to veto a Palestinian state, and it's just their finger. Their finger just loves vetoing Palestinians. They have a very compassionate heart and a very conservative finger. Naughty finger. I think everyone agrees that a two-state solution is the only realistic answer here. What's that finger? Ow! Ow <laughs> finger! Don't poke me in the eye finger! Naughty finger! Don't you press that veto! Don't you do it! Ah! Veto! Ah! Ah, veto! Veto! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, Palestine has put in a bid uh, to be a full member of the UN with all the benefits that entails, which are basically a free sports hold-all, a set of six beer mats with Ban Ki-moon face-on, and a 20% discount in Nando's anywhere in the world. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So we can't, That's not nothing. You can see why they're getting so agitated about it. They, uh, Palestine thinks they should be full members. Israel, any guesses? Disagrees with that. And oh, OK. America have put the... Okay, into equivocation. <laughs> now, uh, according to one uh, Palestinian academic, uh, one of the problems involved in the uh, current bumpy road towards peace is Tony Blair, the self-proclaimed lifelong peace fan who's been involved in the negotiations in his role as part of the quartet, whatever the <laughs> f*** that is. And uh, he apparently is not universally popular, and this Palestinian academic uh, said the Palestinian leadership not only distrust him, they disrespect him. His accounts of supposed achievements on behalf of the Palestinian economy are deeply resented as overblown and self-promoting. Zing! That is a one-star review, John. That's, that is a one-star... I mean, we in Britain would find it very hard to find that Blair was being overblown and self-promoting. That, I mean, that's just not... It's not the kind of guy he was. That's, that's not the guy no. we knew and loved. No, he just loved democracy. That's all. Yeah. That was literally all. He's a fan of peace in the way that someone would claim they were a fan of Bon Jovi without being able to name who the lead singer was. <laughs> if this Palestinian bid for statehood fails, Andy, and by if I mean when, when this fails, because America may or may not veto it, and, you know, when I say may, I mean will, will <laughs> veto it, possibly, and by possibly I mean definitely. When this, fail, when this bid fails because America will definitely veto it, Mahmoud Abbas could then, his other option, he could then ask for a vote of the General Assembly for enhanced observance of a status uh, where no veto is, is possible, which would put them on par with the Vatican. That would th they would become as much of a state as the Vatican, and all they would need then is a gigantic reserve of money, and the Swiss will just turn up out of nowhere to guard them. <laughs> uh, but the best, the best tactic the Palestinians came up with was that they turned up at the UN with their own chair. 
They've made a very comfortable-looking blue chair with the UN symbol on the back and the word Palestine written across it, almost as if they wanted to make it as simple a transition for the UN as possible. Look, we've even brought our own chair and snacks as well. You won't even know that we're here. We'll be invisible, quiet as a mouse. We would just like to table this one motion, this one little motion about Israel's illegal occupation of Palestine. And then you won't hear another peep out of us. Not a peep. And that they should also agree to return to the, return to the 1967 borders. But not a squeak. That was our very last squeak. We're not here. Also, the UN, uh, Ahmadinejad's disappointing performance from him, John, just crapped out the same old shit at the UN as every, every year, basically, prompting another... Predictable walkouts. And yeah. I just think it's such a shame that he always gets walkouts. I just think yeah. it would be really interesting just to see the look on his face if the delegates begun by nodding their heads, then after a couple of minutes started applauding at the end of his sentences. <laughs> and then just really broke into a standing ovation halfway through <laughs> halfway through a suggestion that Israel was not on his Christmas card list. Just to see how much it threw him off his delivery. There is no way he would be psychologically prepared for that. Absolutely no <laughs> way. Isn't it amazing just that, like, the tone of these walk-ups now, uh, walkouts now? It's, as soon as he starts denying the Holocaust took place, you just get, you can see delegates go, oh, oh well, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> or, or he should, he, next year, he should really leave it right for the end. Because I'm sure there are people that have got early dinner reservations that are just banking on him almost opening with denying the Holocaust. <laughs> You can't want to see them calling their wives going, look, I, I, I'm, I don't know, I think, I, I think we're going to be late. I think he's not done it yet. Well, you should be. Freedom is scary. It's a blast of cool wind that burns your face to wake you up. Literally? Yes. There's a trickle of sweat. There's a trickle of sweat. It's dripping in your ear. Still, you gotta run, 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 run. Freedom, run away. Now, don't you fret. And never fear. Freedom's a one, one, a one, a one. Freedom, run away. President Obama at the United Nations, uh, he went over there to, uh, to avert what some are calling a crisis at the UN. So what's this crisis? What's happening? Is, are there going to be people going to war or something? We've got to... No, no, no. War is good. I forget. That's why we want to stay longer in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and Libya was great. No, it turns out the crisis is that we might have peace. The Palestinians have sought a peaceful resolution, a diplomatic resolution to the issue of statehood. Their negotiations with the Israelis have gone absolutely nowhere. Netanyahu has uh, said that he basically has no interest. Every once in a while, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I would negotiate with them. But I'm going to continue to expand settlements, which they don't want. I'm going to continue to claim uh, most of this land is ours. And I'm not going to do anything meaningful, meaningful in the way of resolving this conflict. So the Palestinians say, well, let's try a different path to peace. Let's go to the, take Israel's example. What did Israel do? They went and asked for recognition from the United Nations, and that was their, the historic uh, decision in 1948, and that's how Israel became a state. Follow the Israeli model. Can you think of anything more logical? And by the way, this does not resort to violence. This is perfect. We've been asked for a peaceful uh, resolution to this, uh, and for the Palestinians to pursue that path, they have, so obviously we consider it a crisis. We have unbelievable view of this situation in the Middle East here. It's incredibly skewed. And so the president went there and he gave a speech where he said, we can't have a shortcut to peace. And I thought, 
Why not? That sounds terrific. Okay, what do you want? Hey, guys, do you want to take a really long way to get to peace, or do you want to just take a shortcut? I vote shortcut. <laughs> Let's just get to peace already. He says, no, I mean, if you do the same thing that Israel did, well, Israel doesn't like that, and hence the United States doesn't like that, and nobody can ever explain what the problem is. Like, what is the crisis? What is wrong with the Palestinians getting their state? Theoretically, the United States of America, and President Obama says it over and over again, is in favor of a two-state solution. So what's the problem? There is no problem, except Israel doesn't want a two-state solution. They want to just continue to occupy the West Bank and Gaza Strip and build more and more settlements, and all, of course, all of Jerusalem as well, so they can grab more and more land. That's what the crisis is. And their defenders don't even really bother making a case. The Republicans turn around and go, oh, well, we are obviously with Israel. It is an imperative that we are with Israel. We don't even have to explain it. It, it, it simply is. Okay? Except Rick Perry also adds that it is an imperative of his faith, which apparently is going to mix with uh, the government if he becomes president, that he support Israel right or wrong. That's a fascinating new foreign policy. Now, President Obama was at the UN. We have a part of his speech. Let's show it to you. One year ago, I stood at this podium and I called for an independent Palestine. I believed then and I believe now that the Palestinian people deserve a state of their own. Just not now. But what I also said is that a genuine peace can only be realized between the Israelis and the Palestinians themselves. Israel deserves recognition. It deserves normal relations with its neighbors. And friends of the Palestinians do them no favors by ignoring this truth, just as friends of Israel must recognize the need to pursue a two-state solution with a secure Israel next to an independent Palestine. Except that's not what we want. I'm going to tell you we want that, and then we're going to issue a veto threat to make sure that does not happen. So why did you come here a year ago pretending you're in favor of the state when you go out of your way now to come give a speech saying, don't give it to him. Whatever you do, don't give him the second state. We just want a one state because that's what Israel tells us to do. Keep it real, man. At least be honest with people. Here's the way you get a state. You declare it. Okay. Again, that's exactly what Israel did. So by the way, uh, the Palestinians are going to go to the General Assembly. They will almost certainly win. But that does not give them a, a full state. That gives them basically, yes, yeah, about halfway there. Uh, it, it would have the same uh, effect as the Vatican, it would the same status as the Vatican. If you go to the Security Council, well, then you can get a full state, except, of course, the one country that's always blocking it is the United States. So President Obama went there to say, I will not give you that state. I just won't give it, even though I've promised it over and over. Okay? You've done all the right things. You're willing to negotiate. The other side isn't. But I want you to sit there for maybe the next 30 years, because at least... I mean, at a minimum, 30 years have gone by where they've had no meaningful negotiation, where one side says, I just don't want to give up the land. I don't, for whatever reason. They say, I don't trust you. They say, I need it for my security. I need the water, whatever it is. But well, I'm not going to give it to you. So he's saying, Palestinians, instead of doing it the right way, I want you to go back and sit there like a schmuck and wait for th the next 30 years and, while we pretend that we're interested in giving you a state. That's nonsense. So I, don't, if you, I wasn't clear enough. President Obama's speech at the United Nations was nonsense. He's doing the exact opposite of what he's saying.
The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. The September 9th Washington Post story about a Palestinian bid to have the UN declare Palestine an independent nation carried this headline. Diplomatic efforts unable to derail Palestinians UN gambit. Gambit is the kind of word that seems intended to send a certain message, as if there's some kind of sneaky maneuver at work here. That's especially true when it's contrasted with diplomatic efforts. In other words, Palestinians are using a gambit, where those who wish to discourage them are employing diplomatic efforts, which seems so much more above board. In this case, the paper is referring to diplomatic efforts by superpowers, like the United States, to tell people with very little power, the Palestinians, to pipe down. Whatever you think of Palestinian efforts to elevate their status at the United Nations, an alternate headline, U.S. gambits unlikely to derail Palestinians' diplomatic efforts, is hard to imagine, though it would arguably be more accurate. Shamefully, President Obama went to the United Nations to announce that he was standing in the way of Palestinian statehood. He didn't give any good reason for it, because there's no good reason to oppose statehood for Palestine. And after all, Obama himself has repeatedly said that he favors a Palestinian state. But he can't bring himself to agree with virtually every other country in the world, including our major allies, that Israel should withdraw to its 1967 borders and pull out of the occupied territories. Israel has stubbornly refused to do so and instead has illegally built settlement after settlement on Palestinian land and has made daily life a misery for the Palestinians. And yes, intermittent Palestinian attacks on Israelis haven't expedited the peace process either. But a Palestinian state along the 67 borders wouldn't threaten Israel. Even former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert has acknowledged that. Actually, a Palestinian state would make Israel more secure, because what really threatens Israel is the almost 45-year occupation. It's a hatchery of hatred for millions of people around the Arab and Muslim worlds. And sometimes that hatred is directed at the U.S., Israel's chief ally, as it no doubt will again after Obama's short-sighted and cowardly speech at the United Nations. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
Benjamin Netanyahu. Yes. <laughs> well, a settlement freeze. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Except no, no, yeah, no sorry. settlement freeze. Well, it's close. No <laughs> settlement freeze. Oh right, yeah. right. That subtle distinction. Yeah, subtle distinction. Uh, go ahead from Israel to uh, build uh, 1,100 uh, new homes, but only in East Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah, so South, it won't be cause any problems. Southeast Jerusalem, uh, the hymns, hymns will be built in Hilo or Gilo, a sprawling Jewish enclave in Southeast Jerusalem. Yeah, a little help. Yeah, I think that would be very helpful to the peace process. Totally, yeah. Yeah, because you see, the peace process is about who's going to get what land, and if you start building on that land without asking anybody else. But here's some of the great ironies. Again, right? I mean, it's been going on for... I know, <laughs> right. And that's why they're not in the peace negotiations now, because Netanyahu keeps doing that, and the Palestinians are like... Okay, well, what are we negotiating about if you just keep taking the land, right? Uh, so, some of the ironies here is uh, Netanyahu says, I can't believe the Palestinians are unilaterally going in front of the United Nations and submitting a letter asking for a state. Yeah. Uh, me? Well, of course I can act unilaterally. <laughs> of course I'm going to go build settlements yeah. in what you claim is your territory. <laughs> I, can, I, I can act unilaterally. I'm a country. Yeah, but, but you try to be a country. Come on, look, yeah. come on. And then, of course, the second irony, which I've talked a lot about, is that's how Israel was created. They went to the UN and they asked for a state and they got one. Now, when the Palestinians try to do the same exact thing, yeah, but the they're war. like, how dare you? But everyone wanted Israel to become a state. Oh, everyone did. <laughs> everyone okay, wanted well, Israel. I'm sure it was unanimous, including yeah. the Palestinians, right? They didn't object at all. Uh, <laughs> By the way, a much higher percentage of the world is currently in favor of Palestinian state. Oh, overwhelming. Overwhelming. Of course, yeah. the people who but don't somehow, are the people that are right, in power. Right. right. And, and so, and then third uh, uh, irony here is for how many decades the Palestinians were told, come on now, stop doing the bombings and being terrorists, pursue a peaceful diplomatic route. They're like, you know what? You win. You're right. Let's go peaceful diplomatic. Let's go to the United Nations. They're like, how dare you? <laughs> It's so, it's so indefensible. It's just, it's just, you're just on the wrong side. Yeah, I mean, the, the, because, look, other things can be debatable, and how much of the West Bank should the Palestinians yeah. get in the... And the I guess there's going to be a negotiation. Yes, right, of course, I guess, yeah. and, and all that stuff obviously could be debatable. But the idea of blocking the Palestinians from asking for legitimate statehood, when that, that's what basically we've been telling them to do this peaceful diplomatic thing for decades on it. It's indefensible. When Israel got their state in the same exact way, it's indefensible. And then to say that they're doing something outrageous, you know, the ambassador is going around, the Israeli ambassador is going around on American television talking about, you know, I feel like they're threatening us. <laughs> threatening you with what? With what? Peace? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Meanwhile, as Ben points out, Netanyahu just built 1,100 new homes in what they consider to be their... Capital, by the way, not just part of their territory, but their capital. Yeah, it's, uh, and obviously, and by the way, it's just a tactic, man. Like, that's why they did it. They didn't expect it to pass. The whole point was it's a tactic. They're all, this is, this is, this is negotiating. This is what it is. Swap Shop News! And uh, there was a major prisoner exchange that took place this week in the Middle East. Uh, Gilad Shalit, 
The Israeli soldier, uh, who was captured aged 19 in 2006 and spent the last five years held captive in Gaza, uh, something that, incidentally, he shared with the majority of the other residents of Gaza. <laughs> I guess they just had fractionally more space to move around. Uh, well, he was finally released by Hamas in a deal uh, with the Israeli government, whereby the Israeli government would release in uh, return a thousand Palestinian prisoners. That's a pretty depressing exchange rate, Andy. The Palestinians seem to have suffered hyperinflation in terms of the value of their prisoners. That's right. There's now and 0.001 Israelis to the Palestinians. <laughs> that's, that's just catastrophic, yeah. that exchange rate. Now, you might be thinking, wow, that must be one hell of a 24-year-old Israeli prisoner now. <laughs> yeah. He said, well, it must be the most amazing... That's, it was 1,027 Palestinians and a couple of first-round draft picks as well. <laughs> But he must have been an ama- amazing... So all, he was a tank crewman, John. Yeah. What a tank crewman he must have yeah. been to be worth a thousand... Maybe he could melt and reform. Or maybe he's well, got a magic nose. Uh, but he definitely does put a lot of pressure on young Gilad's shoulders. He, he's like a young footballer who goes to a huge club for a record-breaking fee and who then has to live with the price tag over his head as people <laughs> wait for him to do something to justify it. What I'm saying, Andy, is that Gilad Shalit is the Theo Walcott of political prisoners. <laughs> he's got to produce, and he's got to produce fast, or the critics are going to start circling. Sports uh, writers in the Jerusalem Post are already apparently publishing columns saying that, at best, Galid was worth 300 Palestinian prisoners, <laughs> and this just shows that the transfer market has gone mad. It's all his agent. It's all his five years of talking him up, John. It's just, you know, the agent just driving his transfer value. But also imagine how those 1,027 released Palestinians must feel. I think, is that all I'm worth? Yeah. Is that... You know, I'm, a, I'm a proven murderer, slow, stroke, political prisoner, delete, <laughs> as applicable. Is that all I'm worth? 0.001 19-year-old Israelis? I want out. I want to go work somewhere where I'm properly valued. I want a job in Ikea. That is, that's going to be tough psychologically if you are a released Palestinian. You're basically worth one of Gilad Shalit's fingernails. That must be so hard to deal with. Israel initially refused to negotiate at all, but later entered indirect talks brokered by Egypt with the involvement of a German mediator. A German mediator, Andy. A German mediator. The world's changed, that's all I'm saying. The world's changed. Both sides hailed the deal as a victory. And it's a very rare situation to have a day when both Israel and Palestine are celebrating at the same time. And it doesn't involve dead bodies and flag burning. So we really have to cherish these moments when they come around. They're like solar eclipses. Uh, The truth is that Israel is a country that has national service. Most Israelis have children or know of children in the army. And and the Galad Shalit situation over the last five years has captured the imagination of people. And the Israelis really should be commended for taking such a sustained emotional interest in having a soldier return home from capture at all costs. America, on the other hand, seemed to have compassion deficit disorder when it comes to soldiers. I guess it's from no longer having a conscript army. Because compare the five years of attention for Gilad Shalit with Bo Bergdahl, who's a young American soldier captured by militants two and a half years ago. You you don't hear... Sorry, uh, the young American soldier captured by militants in Afghanistan two and a half years ago. You don't hear about that guy on the day. You don't hear about that guy every day on the news here. In fact, you don't hear about that guy on the news here at all, Andy. <laughs> at all. There's very little in this agreement as well that hasn't been on the table for years. Hamas suddenly got interested in 
a big prisoner deal, as soon as Mahmoud Abbas started lobbying the UN for official membership. This was incredibly popular in Palestine, and Hamas were worried about the soaring approval ratings for Abbas and his non-violent approach to the peace process. Hamas have openly declared that they prefer the violent-violent approach. So... It was clearly a cynical political calculation to try and halt their own declining popularity in the occupied territories. And Netanyahu, on the other hand, wanted the release as a high-profile feather in his increasingly droopy-looking cap. <laughs> so, does it not say something about the situation there, Andy, that both sides in the negotiation could only do this fundamentally positive thing if it was motivated out of pure spite? Joseph from Palo Alto again. Uh, I'm sorry for the multiple messages. I just wanted to also respond to an issue brought up during your Troy Davis uh, death penalty uh, episode. I, I definitely appreciate your focus on the death penalty. It's something that I've been working to end for quite some time now. The problem I had with the element of the episode was that people seem to misunderstand the role of the uh, Supreme Court in this matter. Um, I, I don't remember which um, which uh, piece it was, but uh, I remember that um, there were objections to the fact that uh, the liberal members of the court didn't step in to stop the execution or didn't dissent against the failure of the court to stop it. I, I think that just really didn't appreciate the limitations that Congress has put on the court in their ability to supervise and, uh, you know, prevent injustice in uh, the, you know, use of the death penalty. It, and President Clinton, too, it's a 96 law called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, and it has dramatically reduced the uh, ability of the court to provide a, you know, check against this sort of, um, uh, injustice, and I, I think that it should not take away from the uh, uh, energy that progressives have in, uh, in working to ensure that the court retain as many liberal members as possible, because while it may not have been decisive in this matter, it, it is decisive in a variety of matters that affect the lives of millions of Americans. And, uh, you know, I could get into the minutiae of the case-by-case -case analysis of how it can play out, but I, I really think uh, people would be shocked to see how much of a difference one justice can make. But the other key element is, of course, to you know look at building uh, the sort of grassroots uh, effort we need to repeal uh, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act and the augmentations made in subsequent years to make sure that the courts can uh, step in and block this sort of uh, injustice and provide the traditional oversight that we've expected uh, from our federal court system. Uh, sorry again for going wrong, and uh, have a great day. Hi, Jay. This is Daniel from California, and I just wanted to call in to respond to Zach from Detroit on the December 21st episode regarding uh, the religion episodes. And the reason I think that it is important for the discussion of religion to be on shows like Best of the Left is because religion is used to justify political actions 
by the right, such as uh, abortion rights, rights of Israel, uh, stem cell research, and civil rights. So each of these are just are justified by the right using religious belief systems, and it just happens to be Christian belief systems. Because one side, which is the right, is using religion, uh, religious views to justify their end of the discussion, the other side, being the left, has to take up that argument on the opposing side. So I'd argue that the First Amendment discussions would not be on best of the left if the right were not using religion to justify their actions. So I agree that Christian, uh, with Zach that Christianity sides more strongly in its teachings with the left but, uh, than it does with the right. But I'd also say that and that it is okay and expected that his religion and anybody's religion is going to shape their politics. But I think the anti-religious episodes point out that religion can't be used to define political policy because it doesn't work and it, and it violates the First Amendment. So, you know, such in, as in the cases of abortion, rights of Israel, stem cell research, and civil rights having to do with gay marriage. So I think that Jay's episodes concerning First Amendment arguments are an important part of educating progressives on these topics, which, after all, is the mission statement for Best to Left. So I just wanted to call in, put my two cents in. Jay, keep up the great work. Uh, your last episode was excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I have a couple of things to talk about today, uh, one of which I've wanted to talk about for a while, one of which just came up, and it turns out they're extremely closely related. So uh, so the, first of all, I just wanted to respond uh, to, to anyone who's ever written in or anyone who's ever even had this sort of thought. Uh, people write in on a fairly regular basis uh, and and will preface whatever it is they have to say with, I'm sure you've already heard this, but, or I'm thinking of calling in and leaving a message promoting, say, Occupy Wall Street, but I'm sure you already have a ton of those. And uh, when I get those emails, the answer to their assumption is almost always completely wrong. You know, I, so I have kind of learned through this process of people really assuming, oh, well, I'm sure you've heard this a lot. Uh, I'm sending you this clip, but I'm sure a bunch of people have already sent it to you because it's so good or whatever. That is simply not the case. And so what I've learned from that is that when you think that other people are doing things, you're wrong. <laughs> people are not doing things. And so if you... Uh, give yourself the excuse to not take action on something that you think is important because you think that other people will also think that way and they will take action so I can give myself I can give myself the excuse to not you're wrong and you should take action on that so that was one thing I was planning on just mentioning that and and giving a couple of examples uh, but there's a new campaign that is uh, you know important enough for me to want to talk about and immediately endorse. And if you've been listening very closely for a while, you may have heard me say something like, you know, that I believe uh, climate change is basically the most important issue in the world because it affects the most people, and you know we're really putting ourselves in danger as a species uh, by by ignoring it. But in order to solve the problem of climate change, we first need to solve the problem of how our government functions. And so I actually, you know, in a order of operations sense, 
think that dealing with things like campaign finance reform and corporate personhood are the two sexiest issues uh, to deal with because they are they are the most important and the most immediate because they will allow us to fix the other issues which are genuinely important which leads us to this brand new announcement from the Young Turks. Are you ready for our big announcement? We're doing it in a perfect place. Here we are at Occupy Wall Street in New York. We're covering it. And right behind me is the Liberty Tower at Ground Zero. And this is the Ground Zero for our fight to regain our democracy. Look, the problem is corporations have taken over our government. They have bought our politicians. Money buys favors. And unfortunately, most of the money comes from multinational corporations. So it's not that we're against corporations, it's that we're against them buying our politicians and our democracy. So we've got to fight back against that. The question is how? We have the answer. The answer is a constitutional amendment that goes above the Supreme Court to say that we will not stand for your decisions as Citizens United, Bilotti, Buckley v. Vallejo, where you say that corporations have the same rights as human beings, no way. They are not endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. Only human beings are. So, we go above the Supreme Court and we go above Congress. The problem is, when you go to do an amendment, you need two-thirds of Congress normally. And this Congress is totally bought. So how do you get around that problem? Well, there is one other constitutional option, and that is a convention. If we can get two-thirds of the states to call for a constitutional convention, we can have the amendment that gives back the democracy to the people, as it should be. So how do we do that? Well, that's where we need you. We want to occupy the states until those state houses pass a bill calling for that convention so we can get the amendment to ban corporations from buying our politicians. So we need help in every imaginable way. We need you to volunteer if you have expertise in tech, legal, etc. You need to tell us and we want to make you generals in our army. If you're in the different states and you could help occupy those state houses to get those bills passed, we need you. No matter where you are, Hawaii, Alaska, California, it doesn't matter. We need you to sign up through wolf-pack.com. From now on, they're not coming for us. We're coming for them. So basically, this is the campaign I've been waiting for, and this has been a long time coming. Uh, wolf-pack.com, by the way, that is P-A-C, wolf-pac.com, because it is a political action committee, has been in the works for a long time. I first heard of it um, a, a summer ago, like summer 2010, was, uh, was when Cenk originally announced that they were going to be forming this political political action committee, and uh, and and basically, this is the epitome of striking while the iron is hot. Uh, you know, th those who work in this field and have worked in this sort of advocacy have have been talking uh, about how the energy and momentum for this kind of action has never been higher. And and it just so happens that the Young Turks were were poised and ready to strike at this moment of you know, fervent excitement around the Occupy movement, and uh, and I could not possibly be more excited about it. I've already donated uh, to the PAC and, um, and, and am now obviously endorsing it wholeheartedly and encouraging you to uh, volunteer, donate, uh, you know, apply to be a, a full-time organizer, do whatever you need, and, and be ready when uh, when the actions start to take place, because this is, I think, the best chance 
we have to take this sort of action that we've needed to take for, you know, a century or so. <laughs> so, of course, that brings us back to my first point. Don't think other people are going to do it as an excuse for why you shouldn't. This is absolutely something that you should get involved with because I can't think of anything more important to do right now. So that's it for today. Continue to spread the word about the show. Stay tuned in by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and get details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black, black, black and white about a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out